what we're doing here Wednesday nights, of course, is we are doing these, this, you know, fly over God's word, Bible from 30,000 feet, which is just an opportunity for us to really look at an overview of each book of the Bible to really kind of get a, uh, again, a bigger picture of God's word and just kind of see how it's all woven together and, and woven through. Now, we are continuing here tonight to look at the, the history now of these two kingdoms of Israel that we, you know, began in First Kings, of course, and how we saw in First Kings the division of a united kingdom and a united kingdom that became a divided kingdom, which, you know, turned into the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north, the northern kingdom known as Israel, and then the two tribes made up of Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom, and it became known primarily as Judah, as Judah was the larger tribe there. So Second Kings now is going to continue on to look at these kingdoms and really cover now a period of 270 years, all right? We're looking at doing about a minute for every year of Second Kings here tonight, so 270 years. Uh, and so that's basically uh, over twice the amount of, uh, of time that First Kings covered, okay? So more than twice the period of time in First Kings. This journey is going to, again, primarily focus on the kings that are reigning at this time, okay? And it can get a bit confusing as we jump back and forth between, you know, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, between a king in Israel and a king in Judah. And it can bounce back and forth in certain kings. There's kings in Israel that have the same names as kings of Judah. And it can get very confusing and muddied and stuff. And so we'll do our best to go through this. But basically, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom, and sadly, we're going to see here in 2 Kings, really, the, the word of God came and said, listen, kings, if you will, but, you know, worship the Lord God alone, if you will, you know, make sure you're not walking idolatry, you become faithful to God's word, well, God's going to bless you. But sadly, we're going to see that in Israel, the northern kingdom, there'll be 20 kings, None of them are going to be good godly kings. None of them are going to do what God had called them to do. And in Judah, the southern kingdom, again, there'll be 20 kings. And they weren't a lot better, but a little bit better. Eight kings are going to be good godly kings that are going to usher in reform, look to take care of some of the things that had gotten away on them and, and seek to follow the Lord. So there'll be times where these kings are going to do what's right. So our outline for this book and the way that we're going to divide up tonight is basically this and it kind of follows along with that that we're going to see the struggling kingdoms chapters 1 to 17 primarily again focusing on the the northern kingdom but dealing with certain kings in the south the northern or sorry the struggling kingdoms chapters 1 to 17 and then what we're going to see is that in chapter 17 that northern kingdom of Israel because they didn't have one good king because never did they really reform and follow the Lord well, they were led away into captivity first. And then we're going to be left with now the southern kingdom of Judah, the surviving kingdom. And they're going to last a little bit longer, another 150 years or 170 years, something like that. I can't remember. About 150 years. No, it's more than that. But it's in that time frame. I, got, I can't, can't do my math. So you know what the deal is. So somebody help me out. Seven, Israel's taken away in 722 BC. Because now we got to go backwards, like dealing with negatives, right? 722 BC. And then Judah was taken away in 586 BC. So they lasted for another how long? Math, whiz, wizard, somebody? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I heard a couple different numbers. We'll go with it. Okay. 100 and something. Karen, the principal, come on, I need you to step up on these times here. Okay, no, sorry. Not, <laughs> all right, anyways, so they can last a little bit longer. That's the bottom line. So, struggling kingdoms, chapters 1 to 17, surviving kingdom, Judah, chapters 18 to the end of the book, chapter 25. And that's what we're going to see happening in our, in our study here. It's the north, again, no good kings, godly kings, at all stepped up to lead them in any kind of repentance and righteousness. And that's why they're going to fall prey to captivity first. And it's what we read in Proverbs 14, 34, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So this northern kingdom is going to struggle along and eventually be defeated by the Assyrians and led into captivity in 722 BC. The southern kingdom 
Again, moments of reform and repentance, and so their history lasts a little bit longer, but they're going to eventually drift away too. And they're going to walk away from the Lord and, and, and bring in things to the nation that God had to judge and deal with. And they're going to be led away into captivity by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And that's what we'll see at the end chapter, chapter 25. But what's amazing is that even during this dark and discouraging time of Second Kings, because it's just a roller coaster ride of people just not getting it. And you think eventually they're going to wake up and go, oh, okay, none of this is working for us going our own way. We better follow the Lord. And it's a discouraging time. But even in the midst of this darkness, what do we see? That God sent numerous prophets to shine light into the darkness. There were men like Amos and Hosea, Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. These were all prophets that God had raised up to be a light in the darkness. And these are just the ones that are mentioned with a, a, a name of a book after them. They wrote a book, they, you know, and so we see these guys in the word of God and with books after their name, but we also know that in 2 Kings, we're going to be following and tracking a couple other prophets that didn't have a book written after them, but main prophets, Elijah and Elisha, all right? And so what we see here is that God is not abandoning the people of Israel. God's not an abandoning God. You see, he wants people to come to repentance. He's calling out to them. He's seeking to provide a witness and an opportunity for people to know what the right thing to do is. You see, there's always room with God to turn back to him while you're on this side of eternity. And God gives every opportunity to you. And so even in the midst of these people walking rebellion repeatedly, God's got prophets right there saying, hey, come back to the Lord. This way is not going to lead to any good. This way is not going to help you follow the Lord's way. And there's prophets speaking out to them. And so we'll see Elisha, or Elijah, first of all, just for a couple chapters, and then Elisha. And that can get kind of confusing, right? Because how many people have been, was that Elijah? Was that Elisha that did that? You know, and the names are so similar, right? And we think, well, how do you keep track of these two? Well, in the Hebrew, these names would not have been very confusing, all right? As confusing as in the English language. Elijah in Hebrew is Eliyahu, and then Elijah is Elisha. Elisha and Eliyahu. So when somebody's calling out, you know, they're gonna have a little bit more, idea who they're speaking of for us we just say elijah elisha and it's like who'd you say which one are you talking about well in hebrew it'll be a little bit different well elijah's only going to be around for a couple chapters and then we're dealing with elisha primarily in second Kings. so hopefully that will be a little less confusing for you well in chapter one we pick it up right where we left off at the end of first kings last week and that was with the reign of ahaziah in the north all right he's the king of israel Northern Kingdom. It's not starting off too well for him. Look at chapter one, verse one. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, go inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. So notice he has an accident. He falls through the lattice. And he's inquiring now, he's seeking messages, going to inquire of this God of flies, the God of Beelzebub. The Lord of the flies, basically, is the translation there. Not seeking the Lord. He's going to some inferior God who's not even a God at all. He's a made-up God or idol. And then, notice in verse 3, well, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Eliyahu, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but he shall surely die. So Elijah departed. So this man of God, Elijah, goes and he tells this, the messengers, go tell your man, all right, Ahaziah, that he's not going to recover from this. And what's he doing seeking the Lord of the flies? Is there not a God in Israel that he can go to? Of course there is. It's Yahweh, Jehovah, the only one true God. And so he sends his messengers back, go and tell him. Well, that's not great news for the king. And the king pressed for a bit of a description. Well, who is this guy that sent you to say these things? And it says in verse 8 of chapter 1, So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. 
I'd be a great, you know, if that was the only description he needed to be a man of God, I'm, I'm all in, all right? But so here's Elijah now being referenced as this hairy man with a, a leather belt around his way. Remember when, it, we just talked about this on Sunday, remember when the, 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 the priests and Levites are coming because the religious leaders sent them to, to John the Baptist? Tell us who you are. Are you, are you Elijah? Now remember how John comes on and seeing John the Baptist with a coat of camel hair, right? Eating locusts. So even the appearance of John the Baptist perhaps was very similar to this hairy man, Elijah, that made people think, man, you're looking a lot like Elijah there. Is that who you are, John the Baptist? Well, we know the story. We covered that on Sunday. But nevertheless, Ahaziah knew full well who he's dealing with now. He says, ah, Ahaziah knows. Oh man, this is Elijah, the Tishbite. Now remember who we're dealing with in Ahaziah. Remember who his parents are? His parents are Ahab and Jezebel, one of the more ruthless kings of Israel, married to an even more ruthless woman in Jezebel, right? She was a real Jezebel. That's all you can explain. That's her very name becomes synonymous with an evil, wicked woman. So this is Ahaziah's parents. This is their child. And so he knew full well who this Elijah was because they ran up against Ahab and Jezebel often, or Elijah did. So what Ahaziah does now in chapter one, he sends, he, he sends a captain who's over 50 soldiers. He sends these men to go to Elijah to, to bring him back, to go and get Elijah. Well, Elijah sees these men, the, the, these people coming. And so Elijah's basically saying, listen, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And that's what happened. They're consumed. So now King Ahaziah is like, oh man, that didn't go as planned. He gets another captain that's over 50 soldiers. You go and get Elijah for us. And so they go, and Elijah does the same thing. If I'm a man of God, let fire. And boom, fire comes down, and they're consumed. They're devoured. Well, Ahaziah is like, oh man, this is not going well. He gets another captain. And if I were that captain at that point, I'm like, listen, Ahaziah, I don't care what this is going to happen, but you go. I'm not going. Have you seen what's happened in the last two groups of people that have gone? This is not good. I'm not going. But now he goes, and he goes with a little bit of a different attitude because he comes now and he bows down kind of before Elijah, showing respect. He's like, Elijah, please, let's calm down a little bit here now, right? And so the word of the Lord goes to Elijah. He's like, it's okay. You go, I'm with you. Nothing's gonna happen to you. You go with these people here. Now understand something here. Remember John, the apostle, and his brother James, when they're traveling with Jesus, right? And they're out there and, and there's a town in Samaria that didn't receive Jesus. And they're like, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire upon these people and devour them? Well, this is where they're getting the idea. They're like, listen, Elijah did it. Seemed like a godly thing to do. Shall we bring fire down? And Jesus said, no, listen, that's not what we're here to do. Remember, this may be the way that things were handled then, but it's not the way it is now. In fact, so often we like to handle things that way, right? We just want to see enemies devoured. We want to see opposition just consumed. And yet what we're called to do now, under what Jesus has done for us, is to be ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter Five reveals that to us, that we're no longer ministers of judgment. We're ministers of reconciliation, seeking to bring people into a, a greater understanding of who God is. Listen, it might be tempting, no doubt, to pray a prayer like this, Lord, send the fire down, but that's not what we're called to do any longer. And so Elijah returns, and basically he tells them, tells him himself, you know, this word of God that he will die because he did not turn to the Lord. And so that's exactly what happened. Verse 17 of the first chapter tells us that Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. Well, Elijah now, chapter two, Elijah is with Elijah, his servant, his, his trainee in a sense, you know, and they're heading off together. Elijah's not Leaving aside, it says in verse one, it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elijah from Gilgal. Now that's interesting, it came to pass. I like that because Elijah's been through the ringer in sorts, right? He's had a tough go at times. In fact, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah's sitting there basically telling the Lord, just take my life already. 
Jezebel was after him, trying to kill him. Elijah's thinking, things aren't going well. And that was even after the victory at Mount Carmel against the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah's on the run, and he's thinking, Lord, just take my life. But the Lord encouraged him. The Lord moved him on. And now we read, it came to pass. Those are good words to read, isn't it? Because we can face those situations where we ourselves are going through hardships and trials and difficulties. And we have to realize that the Lord is with us and the Lord is going to bring us through to where we'll say one day, it came to pass. It came to pass that God has just delivered me and brought me through. He's faithful and he will do that. We'll jump to verse nine of chapter two. Verse nine says this, as Elijah and Elisha, are moving on. So it was when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Elijah said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Now in asking for a double portion, Elijah is not getting greedy here, right? In fact, this is the right of the firstborn under Mosaic law. The firstborn son would get a double portion of his father's inheritance. And it implied now that he was the successor in the family, the new leader of sorts. And that's what Elijah is basically asking for. He wants to succeed Elijah. He wants to continue on the ministry, <laughs> the legacy of Elijah. This isn't a greedy thing saying, whatever you got, I want double saying, Lord, Elijah, I just want to continue on this work. I want to be the next man to fulfill that role. And interestingly, Elijah seemed to have received a, a, a double portion of the Spirit in a literal sense because it seemed he did indeed double the amount of miracles that Elijah himself did. In fact, throughout the next few chapters, there's a number of miracles that are recorded from Elijah. I don't know if you can read all those, but that's just an, a number of them. We won't even go through all of them, but all through the next few chapters, we see him doing some incredible things, even raising, you know, a, a child back to life, back from the dead, multiplying, you know, food in a sense, healing waters, like just doing some incredible things. Now, that third one there, the protection of the prophet by two she bears. That one has been a little bit weird and it's, it's kind of left people a little bit wondering like, man, that seems kind of harsh what goes down there. Well, it's written for us here at the end of chapter two. And let's go through that here. It says in verse 23, then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now, first of all, many have felt these were just kids being kids. Why, why, why get so angry at these kids? They're kids, come on. But the Hebrew word for youth is this word na'ar, which can mean males of different ages, right from infants all the way to soldiers, young men. The fact that they were taunting Elijah for his hair loss, I mean, is reason enough for judgment right there. I'm like, take him out, no doubt. That's just cruel. Come on now. Many of you men are saying amen quietly right now, as am I. But what's happening here is that these young men are basically saying, Elijah, go up. In other words, why don't you leave us just like Elijah did? Why don't you just head on out of here? Get out of here. That's basically what they're saying. And, and in so doing, these young men were challenging God, challenging his word, and challenging God's servant. An insult to God's messenger is an insult to God himself. And so these men, these young men, are seen more as just, you know, rebellious, um, rebellious people. You know, just kind of like a, a gang mentality type group. So Elijah just pronounces a curse, but notice he leaves the judgment to God. He doesn't call upon bears. He doesn't, you know, throw some raw meat on them and starts calling for the bears to come at them. He's not doing the work of judgment. He's just pronouncing a curse. God takes care of it. God brings these bears out of the woods and devours them. Now, for another of Elijah's miracles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We'll jump over there and we'll be jumping through 
a little bit here again, just covering a bit of an overview and some highlights through 2 Kings. 2 Kings 4, we see him helping a widow. And then, and then he's helping a, a Shunammite woman and raising her son back to life. This is amazing stuff. It says in verse 38 of chapter 4, verse 38, let me get there. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. So he said, well, then bring me some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Now that's interesting. You see, they're gathering some stuff. They don't know what they're finding, but it poisoned the pot. I think it was in the onion family or something like that. It, it poisoned the pot. Randy, where's Randy? Amen from Randy. Okay. I'm not an onion fan, but so they put something in the pot that, that brings poison to it and they're all getting sick. But notice something now. There's no way to take the poison out. The remedy was to add that which was wholesome. You know, in the same way, our life has been poisoned by sin. Too many think that they can't come to Jesus until they deal with the poison. They got to get rid of this somehow. They got to clean things up, fix some things in their lives, but that's backward thinking. You see, the only remedy for our condition, for our poison, for the sin, is to come to Jesus and add him to our lives. And the enemy continues to try to poison us, but here's the deal. Keep taking in that which is wholesome. Keep on in the word of God and in prayer and in witnessing in those things that bring that added healthy ingredient into your life that overrides the poison. That's what Elijah does. Elisha, bring me some flour. Let's put it in. Suddenly ready to eat now. Well, chapter five is an interesting scene as well. The work of God through Elijah has been spreading around to neighboring nations. And we come upon an interesting man, Naaman. He's a commander of the army of the king of Syria. And we read that he was a great and honorable man, a mighty man of valor. And many people feel that, you know, being good and honorable people is all they need to stand before God. And what they fail to see is their big butt. And, and by that, I don't mean, you know, well, look at what we read here. Listen, now Naaman, a commander, verse one, chapter five. Now Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Do you see that? He was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. You see, Naaman could have been the greatest, mightiest of all people, but there was another reality in his life. He was a leper. And leprosy in scripture is a picture of sin. See, we've all been hit with this ugly disease. But there's a cure for us. Let's see how it plays out for Naaman. Go down to verse 9 of chapter 5, verse 9. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So Eli, uh, sorry, let me just pause right there, because Naaman had gotten word from another person that, again, they're hearing reports of what this man Elijah's been doing. And so he asks and requests the king to go and see him. So Naaman goes, verse 10. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farper River, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Why did Naaman go away in a rage? May I suggest it's because Elijah treated him like a leper? 
What's, what's Naaman waiting for? He's waiting for Elijah to come out to him and start to do some incredible, you know, works of pomp and wonder, waving his hand around the spot, maybe calling out upon the Lord and just pronouncing healing upon Naaman. But Elijah didn't even go. Sent a messenger. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman was furious. Naaman actually had two diseases, leprosy and pride. See, people don't like to be treated like sinners, do they? They don't want to have those things confronted or, or, or exposed in a sense. And sadly, too many people cater to this where the sin issue never gets dealt with. So we see happening in the world today, right? Don't tell me I can't do that. Don't tell me that's wrong. Don't treat me like a sinner. Tolerance isn't what's paramount. Truth is. And pride can be a deadly thing that prevents people from coming to Jesus and receiving his salvation. Some people are more concerned with keeping their dignity rather than getting rid of the disease. Some people are more concerned with keeping their dignity than getting rid of the disease. Naaman is at that point where he's just questioning the legitimacy of going into the Jordan. Because he's thinking, there's better rivers back home. We've got way better sources of water. I would be made much more clean if I dipped in those waters. And the Jordan, indeed, is nothing to write home about. If ever you've been to Israel, you'll know that the Jordan oftentimes in, in many places is nothing more than a ditch, muddy water. Even where we go in, where it's been, you know, set up to be a great place for groups to come in and do their baptisms, even there, it's like, mm, don't keep me in there too long. It's not that clean. It's not that enjoyable. Jordan River is nothing to boast in. And sometimes the way the cross can look very messy to people. People say, I want a more sanitized gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go through some other avenue. I want a different way that seems a little bit more bearable or clean. But you see, there's only one way of salvation, and it's God's way. It's through Jesus alone. Interestingly, the Jordan means descender. Descender. That's exactly what God did for us. He knew that we couldn't rid ourselves of the disease of sin. And isn't that what so many people are trying to do? I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do what I can to ascend to God. To, to reach God. I'm going to earn my way. But we realize none of us can. And God knew that. And so he descended to us. He came down to our place. That's the beauty of the gospel. This is what sets Christianity apart from all other belief systems. It's not man trying to reach or ascend to God's standard by their works. It's God coming to us and doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And the Jordan is a great reminder of that. And Naaman had a hard time with it. I don't know if I can receive that. I don't know if I want to do that. But yet, it's the simplest way. God's provided the simplest way for us. We don't have to jump through any hoops. We don't have to strive to earn this salvation, this right standing with God. We just simply need to accept his way. And that's through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us to do the work for us, to bring salvation free of charge. The gospel is so wonderful. It's all about his grace for us. It's all about him coming to do the work for us. Well, Naaman ended up going in, verse 14. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. See, what does God desire from us? Not works or sacrifice, but what? Obedience. See, it wasn't until Naaman obeyed the word that was given to him was enough to dip in there two times or three times or five times. Seven times dip in, kind of a test of his obedience. Are you going to go all the way? Are you going to go three times, four times and think, this isn't working? Or are you going to go all the way? And Naaman does it. And he comes up now. 
And when he, when he obeyed, when he followed the word of the Lord, he was sealed. It's like he's, he's born again. Literally, his skin becomes like a little child. It's awesome. He's completely healed. It's a great picture of the new life that we have in and through Jesus Christ. The new life he offers us by our faith in him. Well, there's a lot going on still in Israel. Kings are coming and going, and, and the Syrians now are, are pressing in. In fact, they come and surround the city now of Dothan where, where Elijah is hanging out with his servant. And his servant gets up one morning and he sees them all around and he has a little panic attack here, okay? Look at chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16. So, so he answered, Elijah says to his servant, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elijah. Now, think about that. Elijah and his servant, they're in this town, Dothan. And the Syrians hear about him. They're upset with Elijah because if you, you know, in the context there, Elijah's revealing to the king some of the movement of the, uh, of the Syrians and they're thinking, who's a traitor? And they realize, oh, it's not anyone inside. It's Elijah who's hearing from the Lord revealing all their tactics and movements. And so they come to get him. And they surround the city and, and his servant, he's like, oh boy, we are in trouble now, Elijah. And what does Elijah say? Hey, don't fear. How could Elijah say that? To a servant when they're surrounded by an enemy. And it's just the two of them. How could one say, do not fear? Especially when the situation caused for a little worry. It's because Elijah recognized that he served a God that works behind the scenes. That does things that are outside of our realm of seeing. That's why we need to be those that are operating in and moving in faith. Because faith sees the unseen. In fact, as Hebrews tells us, it's the evidence of things not seen. And I love this because Elijah doesn't pray, Lord, remove the situation. He prays for a better understanding of the situation. So he says, Lord, open his eyes. Open his eyes. Give him a better understanding of what's really going on here. You know, people might say faith is blind, but it's the person of faith that sees more than others. Faith allows us to see that God is at work and is working things out according to his perfect plans, apart from what we see in the natural. That God's at work. And it ends up being the Syrians who thought they had it all under control that leave them in blindness. When when this man had his eyes open, he just saw the mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. He saw this, this, this angelic realm all around. He saw that God was there, that God was at work, and God was far greater than anything these enemies could do. And it's, these, it's the Syrians that end up walking away in blindness. Well, so as things progress along, we see various kings come and go, lots of bad kings and only a small amount of good kings. Jump over to chapter 8, verse 16. Chapter 8, verse 16. Now, it says, In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab had done for the daughter of Ahab was his wife and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Here we really begin to see now this kind of corruption that's pouring into Judah now. We've known that's already been at work in the, in the northern kingdom with guys like Ahab and Jezebel and many others. But now it's creeping into the southern kingdom. And how did it creep in? Well, we see this man Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, 
king of Judah, married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Her name was Athaliah. And we're going to see that the nut did not far, fall far from the tree here. Athaliah is going to be just like her mom and dad, Ahab and Jezebel. And sadly, Jehoram now, the king of Judah, is entering into this kind of unholy alliance with his family in the north. Perhaps trying to appease the two kingdoms, bring about a little bit of maybe peace treaty, but it was a walk of compromise. He's being unequally yoked to a person that he should have been running from rather than getting romantic with. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us clearly that we shouldn't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, with, with anything that's running in contradiction to the things of God. And just as Ahab led Israel in, into greater idolatry, so too Jehoram is going to introduce idolatry in Judah. Now, because of that gross misconduct here, God had every right, didn't he, just to kind of wipe these guys out, take out the nation as a whole. Yet, in his grace and in his, in his desire to preserve his word, he didn't. Notice what he says there, verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Basically to have somebody sitting on the throne of the line of David forever. Genesis 49 verse 10 says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. 2 Samuel seven sixteen, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Lord's promise to David. Basically, you will have an heir on the throne forever. So God has a plan to preserve this nation and fulfill his word. But I want you to catch something here because it explains the workings going on behind the scenes for much of what we see happening today. And it reared its ugly head here in this family tree of kings. Look at chapter 11. Jump over there. We'll pick it up here in chapter 11. Verse 1, I continue on this kind of situation here's Athaliah again this is Jehoram's wife daughter of Ahab and Jezebel so Athaliah the mother of Ahaziah and Ahaziah had become the king but he's died now so Athaliah the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs all the next rightful descendants to the throne but Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Here you see the wickedness. Again, that this nut did not fall far from the tree here because here she is even willing to murder her own children and grandchildren so that she could secure her place on the throne. And, and if she succeeds in this, then she's defeating the very word of the Lord that the scepter shall not depart from Judah or that of David's line there will continue to be someone there on the throne. That was a close call right here in our salvation history. God had promised that from Judah and more specifically from the line of David, one would come to be ruler forever. But Athaliah almost negated that promise by her ruthless act of trying to remove every rightful descendant and heir of David to the throne. You see, since the beginning, when Satan corrupted Adam and Eve and caused them to sin, God gave a promise, Genesis 3, 15. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And since that time, you see, Satan has been at work trying to, and, and trying time after time to wipe out the seed of God's people and present, prevent that one from coming that will eventually crush his head. Listen, that's been Satan's plot and ploy. Take out that seed that's going to come from that line and hopefully spare my head. <laughs> right down from Cain killing Abel, the first murder, 
Esau being driven to kill Jacob and, and hunt him down. Satan being corrupted, or, or say, Satan corrupting the whole earth by creating some chaos in which God had to send a global flood and wipe out the earth, sparing only one family, Noah and his family. Then you have Pharaoh seeking to kill all the Hebrew children or Hebrew born males. Saul then repeatedly trying to take out David. In the book of Esther, you have a prominent figure in Haman who tried to lead a genocide against the Hebrew people. And then Herod in the New Testament, ordering all male children to and under in Bethlehem to be killed. And again, we see with the Thali here in our context in 2 Kings, trying to take out that entire line of David. You see, I say all that to say, Satan has been at work to try and prevent God from bringing the seed into this world. That would crush his head. If Satan can prevent this nation from existing, then he thinks God's plans have been thwarted. And you see, that puts a whole different perspective on the fight against Israel today and anti-Semitism. Because I firmly believe that that is a spiritual battle that's going on. That it is satanically inspired. And sadly, we see more and more churches dropping their support of Israel and, and their view that God is still at work in this nation and how they need our support and prayers because they have a world that is against them and wanting their annihilation. It's a nation that Satan would love for you and I to give up on. And so it's a satanically inspired thing. We think lightly of it. People today saying, oh, no. Israel is really the problem. They need to move on. They need to move out. We need to have sympathy for other nations that are, and yet we just see Israel being bombarded by nation after nation all through history. How, how can one little nation that the size of New Jersey, so seemingly small and significant, cause such ire in all these nations and for the most part, not have the support of an entire world except for maybe a couple nations. How could that be? It's a spiritual battle. It's satanically driven and how we need to be praying for Israel because God's not done with them. God's still at work. God still has plans to unfold to this nation that are carrying out the very word and promises that he has given. Well, 2 Kings chapter 13, we see the death of Elijah now. Look at verse 14, chapter 13, verse 14. It says, Elijah had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, I find that interesting because here's Elijah, a great miracle worker, one of the greatest of miracle workers. A man used to heal others who now comes down with an illness from which he will not be healed of and will eventually die because of it. You know, there's a teaching among some churches or, or, or Christians, although a very heretical one, that says God doesn't ordain sickness. Or say, if you're sick, it's because of a lack of faith. We as believers, they'll say, should be walking in just divine healing, perpetually well, health and wealth. There are people that'll teach that. And to that I say, that's a bunch of poppycock. It's just not true. Nowhere in the Bible is that taught. In fact, we'll find more references that that's not true because here's Elisha now who's a great man of God, a great man of faith, a healer, a miracle worker, who ends up dying because of a sickness. Sometimes God just isn't gonna heal people. Well, let me, let me say it this way. Everybody will be healed <laughs> at some point and at one day when we're with them. But he may not heal you in this lifetime. He may do it in eternity. Even men of great faith and used mightily by God have succumbed to sickness and hardship. It's just not a true teaching that people will say that as believers, we should be walking in health and prosperity, that 
It's a lack of faith if you're sick. He's going to point them to scripture that says otherwise. Well, in chapter 15, we come across a king by the name of Azariah, who is known as Uzziah elsewhere. Uzziah is a a well-known king, and we read of him in chapter 15. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecolia of Jerusalem. Now, Azariah here, Uzziah, he had a very lengthy and successful reign. He regained a lot of territory in Israel and became so strong that even other nations came and paid tribute to him for their own safety and protection. Now, Azariah had a great start to his his reign, but not so great of a finish. In fact, we'll we'll touch on that uh, in 2 Chronicles when we get to it, because 2 Chronicles overlaps a lot of what we're reading in 2 Kings, and so there might be a few things we skip over, but Hopefully, we'll get to it in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles deals more and focuses more on the southern kingdom of Judah, and we'll talk about why that is, but we'll see a lot of overlap here, and we'll get into Uzziah a little bit more in 2 Chronicles, but Azariah, Uzziah eventually died, and it, it, it was that period of great success in Judah. Again, the fact that he, he reigned for 52 years with, again, just great things happening, great success. And then he dies and perhaps people wonder, what's gonna happen now? Where, where are we at now? What's gonna become of us now? Our king who has led us in some great advancements is now gone. And perhaps hope began to wane. But remember what we read in Isaiah chapter six, verse one to four. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah receives this vision, this prophet there, in Israel, a a prophet to let the people know, listen, Uzziah might be dead, but understand, God is still on the throne. God is still in charge. And we have nothing to worry about if we are looking to him. You see, despite what we might see happening on earth, we have to recognize that God is still in control of all things, that God is still at work and he's on the throne. And we have to trust that he's working out his plan, and he is. And from an earthly perspective, things on earth, you know, really might seem like they're spinning out of control. And it was kind of in this time frame here. Look at how things are going in the northern kingdom of Israel. Second Kings chapter 15, let's pick it up in verse 8. Let's just read a little bit just to give you a bit of a, a, a context now as to the shape of how things are, kind of the the, the spiritual climate uh, of the nation of Israel. Verse eight says, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Remember, Jeroboam was kind of like the first king where the nation divided and he set up um, golden cows to worship in the north and in the south of the kingdom. So this king continues on in those ways. Then Shalom, verse 10, the son of Jabesh conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu saying, your sons shall sit on the throne to Israel of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. A whole month. 
Not bad, eh? All right. For Manahem, the son of Gadi, went out from Tirzah, came to Samaria, and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and killed him. And he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Then from Tirzah, Manahem attacked Tipshah, all who were there in his territory, because they did not surrender. Therefore he attacked it. All the women there, uh, there who were with child, he ripped open. So, just sad, gruesome wickedness going on in this nation. It's not a, a pleasant picture that we read. It just kept trending that way to the point that God needed to take them away. So he raised up the Assyrians to do just that. Look at chapter 17. And we'll pick it up in verse 5. Now, the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. So God is very clear to show them now why he is removing them. He's given them his word that if they follow his word, they'll be blessed. But if they rebel against it, well, then they were to expect his judgment and his judgment would come in the form of, of being taken away by a neighboring nation into captivity. God made that very clear to them. This, is, this wouldn't have been a surprise. And yet still they didn't follow it. Well, here's a list of some of the things that we read and more in chapter 17 that again led to their downfall. They feared other gods. They adopted Canaanite customs. They adopted customs condemned by the Mosaic law, practiced secret sins. They built pagan high places. They made sacred pillars and, and Asher, and they burned incense to other gods. They did evil things that provoked Yahweh. They served idols. They refused to heed God's warnings. They became obstinate. They rejected God's statutes, rejected his covenant, pursued vanity. They became vain. They followed foreign nations. They forsook Yahweh's commandments. They made molded calves, made an Asher. They worshiped the stars. They served Baal. They practiced child sacrifice. They practiced witchcraft. They sold themselves to do evil. All those things are mentioned in just a few verses from verse 7 to verse 17. 24 things mentioned there in 10 verses of what they were doing. And so God laid out for them to be so clear that this is why his judgment is coming. Verse 18 of chapter 17, verse 18 says this, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. So they were taken away by the Assyrians dispersed in other areas. So from here to the end of the book, we focus in on the southern kingdom of Judah. And it has a great start with their king, Hezekiah. Second Kings 18 begins that secondary division of the book. We saw the, um, oh, now I even forget what my divisions were. Who wrote it down here? I'll look it up. The struggling kingdoms, there we go. Northern kingdoms, chapters one to 17. Struggling kingdoms, and now, we look at the surviving kingdom. Judah is alone, as we just read there in chapter 17. So we'll focus a little bit here now on, on Judah. We're, we're not going to spend a lot more time. We're going to move through this quickly here, but let's look at Hezekiah for one. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, that son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Remember that back in Numbers when there was a plague that was sent out upon them for their sin? God told Moses to make that, that bronzer and put it on a pole. Whoever looked at it will be made well. Well, they kept that thing, and it became an idol to them. They named it Nehushtan. 
And so they began to worship this thing. And it's interesting how we have to be so careful that we don't allow religious relics to become worshipped or idolized. I think that's why God's kept us from discovering a lot of things. We wonder, where's the Ark of the Covenant? What about this Shroud of Turin? What is all this about? Well, it's like, we don't need that stuff. We just need to look to the Lord. He's the one that needs to be praised and worshiped, not these other things. And he knows the tendency of our heart, and it was so even for the Israelites. And so up until this time, and they'd still kept that thing around, but now Hezekiah comes in. He's like, I wanna, I wanna take out everything that's tripping us up, distracting us. So he's removing all the high places, even this thing that's been left for so long. Well, we continue on in verse five. It says there that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor, were, nor who were before him for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse seven, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So here we see a number of things that Hezekiah did that made him such a good and successful king. Notice there, verse 5, he trusted in the Lord. Verse 6, he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. Verse 7, the Lord was with him. Everything that we see with Hezekiah, he trusted the Lord. He remained with the Lord. He held to the word of the Lord. How important those things are. Hezekiah, though, was not without difficulty because the Assyrians are still on the prowl looking to take down Judah as well. And messengers have been sent forth and they're taunting Hezekiah, you know, saying, listen, just give up. We're going we're gonna to take you down. And so Hezekiah is given a letter from one of these messengers and he takes it to the Lord and he lays it out and he prays. And here's what he says in verse 20 of chapter 19. Turn over to chapter 19, verse 20. Here's what Hezekiah does. Or sorry, now we're going to skip ahead here. Hezekiah just prayed to the Lord. And again, he's seeking God's help in this, which is always, again, he's, he's holding fast to the Lord. He, the Lord is with him. Hezekiah knows that's the key. I got to be with the Lord. And so here's what Isaiah says to him now in verse 20 of chapter 19. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Not only did the Lord hear, but now the Lord acts on behalf of Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah was the king that was sure to go to the Lord and look to the Lord for his help. And notice what we read. I love this chapter 19, verse 35. As Israel has been surrounded by the Assyrians, and it's been a tough go. Famines come to the land, people have become desperate. But Hezekiah is giving that word that God's going to help them. And so look at this, verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. That's great. I love that. So from that point on now, we're not going to see the Syrians any longer. It's going to be the Babylonians that are going to be raised up as God's instrument of judgment against Judah and against some of the folly that they're going to continue in. But here we see Hezekiah being spared, the nation being spared again because God is faithful and God is good. And God is so much stronger than anything that could come against you and oppose you because the people here are probably thinking we're doomed. It's just a matter of time. You ever feel like that? It's just a matter of time before everything just falls apart, before everything just collapses in. I'm sure they were feeling that. But it takes one night for an angel of the Lord to take out 185,000. They didn't have to do anything. How we need to look to the Lord, rely on the Lord, lean on him in our times of, uh, of difficulty, in, in those times where we're feeling hopeless to say, God, I never need to be without hope when I'm standing in you and with you and looking to you because God, you're able to do in one night, in one hour, in one minute. That would take a, a lifetime for an army to accomplish. God, you're able to do that. We're never without hope when we look to the Lord. Well, verse one of chapter 20, in those days, 
Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So Hezekiah, can you imagine that? He's being told, listen, Hezekiah, get things in order, you're about to die. Can you imagine being told you are going to die tomorrow? How would you respond to that? What would you need to do to be ready? How would you live life? Would there, be, would there need to be some major changes made, a lot of getting things in order? Or would you just be you know, ready to go? That's a good question to ask ourselves. What if tomorrow was my last day? How would I live differently? Would there be things that I'd be spending a lot of time getting in order? Or would I just be like, Lord, you can come now. I'm ready for you. I'm ready to be with you. Amen. Well, Hezekiah prays. He seeks the Lord. And, and notice what he says there. Remember, Lord, <laughs> how I've walked before you. Now, that's kind of a Maybe an appropriate prayer for that day, not so much for our day. I mean, if I prayed that, Lord, remember how I've walked before you. I mean, I may be a goner. That would probably be like, yeah, I'm remembering. And oh boy, it's time to take you out now, right? But you see, we don't approach God based on our works or merit. We don't have to say, Lord, please do this based on how I've lived. Lord, look at what I've done. Please do this. And we come to the Lord based on his mercy and his grace. That's what Hebrews tells us to do, to approach that, to come with boldness and approach that throne of grace and mercy. We don't come on our merit. We come on what Jesus has done for us. Well, Hezekiah's life is extended, but it may not have been the best thing. Because what he does is he invites some Babylonian ambassadors to come down and see all the great treasures he's got in the temple, in his palace, and that became kind of the, the open door they needed to see, oh man, that's a group of people that we need to be putting on our kind of target, on our, on our hit list here. And Isaiah ends up saying to Hezekiah in, in, in chapter 20, verse 16, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left Said, says the Lord. So throughout the rest of the book, we see the rise and the fall of different kings, which eventually led to the fall of Judah. After Hezekiah came a very bad king in Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years. Then a good king followed him in Josiah. He reigned 31 years and brought again another reform in Judah. After Josiah, his son Jehoahaz is on the throne. He's only there for three months barely enough time to kind of warm the throne, and he's deposed by the Egyptians. They put his brother then Eliakim on the throne, and, and, and they changed his name to Jehoiakim, and he's there for 11 years. Jeremiah, the prophet, warns Jehoiakim, don't mess with the Babylonians, and do whatever Nebuchadnezzar says. Basically, just be a servant to them, and that'll free you up. But he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and he's deposed by the Babylonians, and Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim is replaced by a guy named Jehoiakim, and he's there for three months and 10 days. And he's deposed and taken captive to Babylon. Zedekiah now is placed on the throne. And he starts a coup. And eventually the Babylonians come in and kill his sons and put his eyes out. And he's taken away captive to Babylon. It kind of fulfills a, a verse in Ezekiel 12, 13, saying that he'll be taken to Babylon, yet will not see it. And that's why, because he would be blinded and then taken to Babylon. Well, Turn to the last chapter, chapter 25, verse 8. I've just ran through the next line of kings. And again, we'll, we'll look to kind of cover that a little bit more in Second Chronicles, hopefully. Touch on it a little bit. But here in chapter 25, verse 8, and we'll close with this. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. The Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon 
with the rest of the multitude. So this happened in 586 BC. This is the third and the final deportation of Jews to Babylon because the Babylonians came in three ways, took away groups of people in each way, but this was the third and the final one now where the temple of Jerusalem was sacked. A very sad outcome. There were many people in Jerusalem that were spreading false reports that just because they have the temple, they're going to be safe. God will never allow anything to happen to the temple or to Jerusalem. This is God's place. This is where God meets with us. Nothing's going to happen to us. And they were putting their trust in the temple rather than their trust in the Lord and seeking the Lord. But God was more interested in the heart of the people being after him than he was in just a temple. He was willing to let that go for the sake of seeing the people turned to him. It's a very sad outcome to people that should have experienced so much better. The question for us is, what are you experiencing? Are you experiencing times of refreshing as you give yourself to the Lord and follow in obedience to his word and to his way? Or are you going about things your own way and perhaps maybe experiencing defeat, maybe captivity? The difference maker in those situations is who is your king? Who is your king? Because the kingdoms rise and fall based on the king. And in these episodes here, we see a few good kings, but primarily evil kings that just perpetuated the sin to where God had to deal with it. Are we allowing Jesus to be firmly established on the throne of our heart and be our king? Are we following him? Is he the one that's leading the way? And having his way in our lives. Because that's what's going to ensure a smooth journey. One of blessing and peace. Let's be sure that we are allowing him to be our king. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just look to you right now. And we we do thank you, God, for the, the many different stories that we have through history. They're not just stories. They are are your story. They are truly history as as we see, God, how you dealt with these various nations and how we see the examples of what comes uh, upon those that are, are, are choosing to forsake your way, to go their own way. And it's a reminder for us, Lord, that you have blessing in mind for us, but that comes as we follow your way and walk in obedience, and I pray you'd help us to do that. May we see that you, Jesus, are firmly established, Lord, as king of our lives, sitting and ruling on the throne of our hearts. So may you do that work and lead us on. And we ask that in your name, Jesus, amen. All right, second Kings down. Next week, first Chronicles. And uh, yeah, we'll see how these books... Though very similar in a lot of ways, how they differ and why they differ and why we have them. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that.